Yes, the church that shall not be named. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Uh, I, I think I just got introduced as your guest seeker. So yes, I am a seeker. I'm a seeker for sure. <laughs> Thank you for that. I think we're going to have some fun this morning. But before we get into the word, uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit. You guys want to hear some good news? Everybody loves good news, don't they? Well, here's some good news. Uh, this last year, so let me back up a little bit. Your church gives to the cooperative program. Cooperative program goes to help fund ministries across our state, but it also goes to fund ministries across our nation, which includes uh, our six seminaries. Uh, it helps. I, I was able to go through seminary, and I did not have to get college loans and whatnot because of what our churches have done and coming together with money got to help fund me to be able to get education to pastor, and I got the chance to pastor for some 12 years. And now I work for our state convention, so it helps fund ministry across our state. Uh, it helped uh, our church planting um, and international missions. It all goes to the ministries. We put all of our money into this bucket that helps fund all of that stuff. So here's some, some, some interesting stuff. Because of your offering and your gifts, we were able to, this last year, do about 24 regional evangelism workshops. They're one-day workshops that churches came together and got to learn about reaching their community, and then we were able to give them a grant to do that. We trained 199 churches last year, and those 199 churches shared the gospel with 90,192 people. That's nine. Just our normal Southern Baptist churches across California was able to share the gospel with over 90,000 people. That, I think, is just, it's just great what our church is able to do when they come together. Another, and I want to give you one more piece of good news when it comes to how we do ministry together, how we're better together. We do ministry for migrants. Migrants are usually those within California that are marginalized. During COVID, when most of us got to enjoy staying at home, most of the migrants didn't. A lot of the benefits we enjoy, they don't get access to, and they're out working the fields. COVID hit them probably harder than any other group within our state. Um, and we minister amongst migrants. And uh, so we have centers that we distribute food. We distribute clothing to them. We try to come alongside and help them in all we can. To, uh, to, to, and we also share the gospel with them. Coming into COVID, the last, so in 2019, we had about 1,700 decisions for Christ through our migrant ministry, 1,722. That's great. But then we go into covid Migrant centers had to shut down. They had to still work in the fields, but the centers in which we engage with them and do ministry, we didn't have access to, so we had to change our strategy and be out in the fields with them, trying to help them in ways we can and share the gospel with them. Well, the first year of COVID, so 2020 came along. We're wondering, how are we going to do? Over 2,300 migrants made decisions for Christ. That's great. And then we go into the next year in 2021, as we're able to bring back together over 2,600 migrants place their faith in Jesus. Those are wins, church, you get to have. I want to say thank you for giving to missions and being a part of reaching our state with the gospel of Christ. Thank you, church. Okay, now let's get in some better news, which is God's word. If you would, you can open your Bibles, you can swipe in your phones, or you can follow along with me on the screen. We are going to be primarily in 2 Samuel. But I want to warn you, you've got to warm your fingers up today because we are going to be all over the place. So we're doing a little Bible marathon today, so make sure you're warmed up for it because we're going to be going through a lot of different scripture. But we're going to be primarily in 2 Samuel. So here's today's message. It starts off 
with a couple missionaries that go down to an unreached people group. I believe it was South America. And this is before we had really intercontinental communication where you can simply pick up the phone and call someone out of our nation. It was before that time. The only way you really got the word spread and communicating was by letter. So these missionaries go down to an unreached people group. They share the gospel. They're there for a couple years, and they plant a church. And, uh, and before the cooperative program, missionaries weren't really funded the way that we do today. Today, if a missionary goes on mission, because of the cooperative program, we fund them to be on mission. Before that, they had to spend half their time raising their funds. So these missionaries come back to the States. they got to go back and do some fundraising. And they get a letter from this church, and the letter says this. We are in desperate need for you to return. We are suffering from the sin of Ahithophel. Well, they were like, what in the world is the sin of Ahithophel? Well, I think maybe we can take a little time and see if we can uncover what that is and what that might mean to us today. So who is this guy, Ahithophel, and what could possibly be his sin? Let's start off in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23. We get some idea. Verse 23 says, Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. So we get a little picture into who he was. He was a counselor to King David. Not only was he a counselor, it says that he was like an oracle of God, which is a word for saying he was like a prophet. He wasn't a prophet, but it seemed like he gave prophet kind of advice. You have someone in your life that is so good at giving godly advice that whenever your life gets off track or you're in trouble and you're going to pick up the phone and you're going to call, that's who David was calling. He's having a hard time. He'd pick up the phone. <laughs> he called to hit the fell. It was his godly, it was his counselor, which means they were probably close friends. It probably wasn't just issues of state, but probably of military, personal. This was his go-to guy when it came to advice. And he was, gave such good advice, such godly advice, it was as though he was talking to a prophet. That's who Ahithophel was. Um, 2 Samuel 17, 23 might give us a little sight. Well, if that's who he was, what could the sin be? Let's take a look at that. Chapter 17, verse 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled the donkey and rose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in his father's tomb. So the sin of Ahithophel must be suicide, right? So this small community that is new to the church, and they must be suffering from a bunch of suicides, and that's what they need help with. All right, I guess we solved the problem, didn't we? Time for lunch? <laughs> no such thing as a bad short sermon. Amen? Amen? Well, we're missing some things here. How do we go? From a man who was such a godly man, it is as though he was God's mouthpiece. He was like an oracle. How do we go from that to then him ending his life? We're really missing something here, aren't we? All right, let's see if we can back up and try to uncover what this might have been. Second Samuel fifteen twelve says, Then Ahithophel sent for then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor. So now in a couple places in Scripture, we've had him identified as David's counselor. So we can say probably first and foremost, that was his primary role. He, he gave counsel to David. Theologians would say he probably also served in some military capacity. 
He wasn't like a four-star general like Joab, but he probably was more of like a captain or maybe a one-star somewhere around there. All right, now let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 34 through 39, we have this list of men that are called the mighty men of valor. This was David's most elite fighting force. I mean, if David had a SEAL Team 6, it was these guys. They were bad dudes. They, they, they knew how to do war and combat, and they were the 37, the 37 most elite military fighting force that David had. And these, in this long list, and I'm not going to read through all these names, you know, <laughs> I think God has a sense of humor. I think he does because he makes these kind of names to trip up redneck preachers like me because I can't say most of them. But I want to point out a few to you. If you would look at verse 34, it says, if you highlight your Bibles or you underline in your, in your app, these are some ones I recommend you guys highlighting and marking. 30, uh, verse 34, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. I would highlight those. And then verse 39, and Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Now, these men have been through, have been through battles together. They, are, um, they know each other immensely. Anybody here ever serve in the military during time of war? Anybody? There's a number of you. Thank you guys for that, especially with our weekend today. Thank you for what you've done. Um, I am fortunate. My, my, grand, my great-grandfather served in World War I. My grandfather served in World War II. He was a belly gunner on a flying fortress. If you guys know about history, that's a dangerous position to be in, but he survived and made it back, and uh, he ended up becoming, he retired from the military after serving for some 20-something years as a drill sergeant, and that my, my dad then the, graduated from high school and just like that day pretty much went to the military and served in Vietnam. It's three generations, and then it came to me, and I got to get skipped. <laughs> Thank you for God's grace in that. But here's something that I, I, my, my grandparents, my dad, people that have been in, in, in serving during time of war, they don't like to talk about it much, do they? They, they? Those are usually stories they do not want to have to relive and definitely don't want to have to retell. My dad talked very little about his time in the military. I kind of got some just to what he had done. He was a M60 gunner. It was a two-man crew. He was a big guy, and he was really good shot. So he ran an M60 in this platoon, and he took another guy that carried a lot of the ammo because that gun went through a lot of ammo. So it was him and his best friend, Bubba. That's what they named him, Bubba. And they were two weeks from coming home from their deployment. And they get into a firefight. They're in a foxhole. And an explosion happens in their foxhole. And it kills my dad's best friend, Bubba. Many years later, he's now into his late 40s. He starts having these recurring dreams, this nightmare of the flash that would happen in that foxhole that killed his best friend, and he would wake up in sweats, and it was, he was having, he had to end up going and get counseling. For my dad to go to counseling, I tell you, it'd have to be, (laughs) he's a tough guy. They didn't do that. He had to go to counseling because it was bothering him so much, he couldn't sleep at all because he kept having this reoccurring nightmare, and it would ruin his night. So here's something I think, even though none of, those of us that have not been into those kind of scenarios might understand. Politics don't matter much when a firefight's happening. It is you and your men. It is your, you become like best friends, like family, like brothers. And you, you count on each other and they save your life and you save their life and, and you become extremely tight in relationships. 
so tight that many years later, my dad is still having nightmares of losing his best friend. So we can understand that we can assume those same kind of relationships apply to these 37 men of valor. They would have known each other. They would have had deep connections for each other. They would fight and die for each other. It's all about each other. With those 37 men and that kind of relationship, let's maybe put some context into... um, into what these names all mean, and, and, and maybe now it might all come together for you. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to see how, how it all fits together. Remember those three names that you highlighted, marked, those three that we looked at. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, And they destroyed the people of Ammon, and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So now let me ask you people that are really savvy, that have been following along with me. What's the relationship between Bathsheba and Ahithophel? You guys see it? It's his granddaughter. She's her grandpa. So the story, what happens next, is that David has an affair with Bathsheba. Bathsheba gets pregnant. David tries to cover up his sin, and he sends for her husband, Uriah, who's one of these men of valor, to come and come home. But Uriah is such an honorable man, he won't go home. David's thinking is he'll come home, and then he can take take credit for this pregnancy, and I'll be off the hook, but he won't go home. David tries time and again, and his, 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 basically his attitude was this. As long as my buddies are out there dying in the battlefield, I'm not going to go to my cozy house. And he pretty much camps at the, at the he guards the, the king, guards David. He won't go home. Then David hatches this horrible plan. He writes a letter to the general, Joab, and he says, in this letter, put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle and then withdraw the troops and let him die. And he writes the letter and he hands it to Uriah to carry himself. He carries his own death sentence, gives it to the general, Joab. The general follows the king's orders and Uriah is killed. Then David takes Bathsheba as his own. Now, they didn't have newspapers back then. But if they did, what would have been on the headline of a newspaper was amazing king takes in poor pregnant widow. Could you imagine? Now let me ask you this. If you are Bathsheba's grandfather, that would have known all of this. I mean, honestly, in a church of 300, can you keep a secret? (laughs) Nope. You can't keep a secret among 37 men either that will live and die for each other. They would have known exactly what happened. So if you are Ahithophel, let me ask you, what would be going through your mind right now? How would you feel if one of your close, because they weren't, he wasn't just a counselor, they were friends. If you were Hithophel and you're the godly counselor for the David, for, for King David, and then your granddaughter, her family is destroyed, her husband is killed, a men of valor, which we assume Hithophel had close relationships with him, his son was being one of them, he, he, he betrays your friendship, he wrecks your family, and he takes your daughter and everyone is giving him pats on the back for doing it. How would you feel about that? What might be going through your mind and your heart of what your friend has done to you and your family? 
then, as you may know the story, the, the child that they have with Bathsheba, that child passes away. Their second child that's born, you guys know the name of that second child? Solomon. Solomon means shalom man. It is son of peace. How might that name sit with you? <laughs> Where's your peace? Right? Where, where, where's justice for you and your family? And from what your friend, I'm sure that was just icing on the cake of bitterness for Ahithophel. Now, the prophet Nathan comes to him, and he says that you're guilty, and that first child dies. The second child, uh, Solomon, is born. Um, David repents. I mean, we have Psalm 52, sorry, Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm of David's repentance. Uh, and he, he, he brings it before God, and God forgives him. Is there any depth you can go to where you are out of reach of God's grace? No. No, even something as horrible as this, God still offers it. Let's, let's read a couple of his words. Um, Psalm 51. Let's read verse 2, 7, and 10. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, I mean, we sing songs about this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David comes, and he's broken before God, and he pleads for forgiveness, and God forgives him. I mean, this horrible thing he did, he's going to have a title called a man after God's own heart. He's redeemed. He's forgiven. He's, God brings him back. But what about his friendship with Ahithophel? Now, within the narrative of 2 Samuel and even 2 Kings, we don't see any reference to what David has done with his friend Ahithophel, but I believe, I believe we have a psalm that gives us a potential insight. Now, this is just my take on this psalm. It could be in this context. It could, it seems to really fit. But tell me what you tell me what you think. Let's turn. Psalm 55, verse 12 through 14. I think David does try to reconcile. Look at what it says. Verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor does one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together, and we walked to the house of God in the throng, which means they went to church together. I think David tries to reconcile with his friend Ahithophel. And I think Ahithophel is so bitter, he rejects it. He will not forgive David for what David has done to him and his family. So, what becomes of Ahithophel? Let's turn to 2 Samuel 17, verse 1. 2 Samuel 17, 1. And the backdrop to this is many years have gone by. David's son, uh, Absalom, is trying to lead in a coup. He forms a little military force just south of Jerusalem, and he marches with some 12,000 men up into Jerusalem to take over and to kill his dad and take over and be king of the land. And his dad, King David, hears about this, and he runs. Scripture says he crosses the Mount of Olives without even having his sandals on. He leaves. And, um, uh, and so now um, Absalom is in the palace. He's seated on the throne, but he's not the legitimate king because his dad still lives. So he needs to have his dad's that end, and then he'll be the legitimate king of the people. But he also has a problem. Do you want to go to war where you're having, you want to start? off as king by making brother kill brother? I mean, that just sounds like a terrible plan. In walks Ahithophel. 
2 Samuel 17, verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and the elders of Israel. I mean, he walks in with this brilliant plan. He says, here's the thing. Let, you don't have to start as king in civil war. You give me a few men, I'll go after him, and I personally will kill only the king. Then I'll take his army and the army you gave me, bring them all back to, to, to Jerusalem, and you'll be king over a new kingdom. Mothers will love you because their sons didn't die. It'll be good. It'll be good for you. And he's like, that sounds great. Here's something I want to point out. Years have gone by. Maybe about 20 years have gone by. You know that you've been told a lie your entire life? I've been told this lie my entire life as well. You know what the lie is? Here's a lie. Time heals all wounds. No, it don't. It, it sure didn't here. It didn't heal his wounds. It's a lie. I think it's a lie that we tell each other so we can, don't have to deal with some of the hardest junk in our life. And we can lie to each other and say, no, I can just ignore it because time heals all wounds. I'm just going to ignore that. And it doesn't happen to the point now where Ahithophel sees an opportunity. He hatches this plan to kill who was once his friend because bitterness has choked out his life so badly. Absalom then calls another counselor, Hushai, and Hushai says, it's not going to work. David's a, I mean, he rules that desert. Look at what happened with King Saul when he tried to go after David. It's not going to work. And so finally, Absalom rejects his advice. He probably feels rejected by God too. Let's go back. Turn a few verses down. 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23 completes the story for us. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in his father's tomb. He goes home and ends his own life. He is so consumed with anger, so consumed with bitterness, he cannot see even living anymore, and he ends his own life. A man who was once as an oracle of God is at such a low point, he takes his own life because he cannot get revenge. That's a tough place to be. Do you know that Hebrews 12, 15 warns us, it says that we should not let a root of bitterness take hold in our hearts. Right? It's, it's interesting. It's kind of like a story that I heard a while back. There was this guy that went to work and he did not like his work, definitely did not like his boss. His boss, every time his boss talked to him, he'd poke him in the chest. And poke him in the chest and poke him in the chest. And he finally says, you know what? I'm tired of my boss poking me in the chest. I'm going to get a stick of dynamite. I'm going to strap it to my chest. And the next time he pokes me, I'm going to blow him up. That is what bitterness does. We think that in holding a grudge, we are hurting them. It doesn't. It hurts us. I love how consistent scripture is when it talks about the inner workings of our life, our inner world. It often paints the picture of our inner world being like a garden, right? We, he's the vine, we're the branches. 
or the parable of the soils where, where God's word is shared and, and we're the soil and we determine the kind of land, it land the kind of fer, fertilized ground it lands in, right? So we, we have the, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We have, we, so we always have this inner world that scripture says is like a garden. So you have your garden, you have the fruit of the spirit that you're trying to grow and mature and, and, and you have like a garden often hands these rows that go down that you try to keep clean. And, and your garden's good. And a stone walks over and throws some seeds into your garden. And they're bitter. And all of a sudden, you go down your garden, you have these weeds that are growing up inside your garden. Here, here's one of the things about, about this particular area. Can't we feel so justified in holding a grudge? You didn't throw those seeds in there. You didn't deserve to be treated that way. That's their fault, not your fault. And what we can do is we can kind of, in our own heart, create like a dungeon. And we take that person that's wounded us and hurt us, and we put them in that dungeon, and we just simply love to watch them squirm and watch them suffer in the dungeon within our heart. Do you know what happens if you make a dungeon in your heart? You are the one that's imprisoned within it, not them. It hurts you. It does not hurt them. So this area to not let any root of bitterness take hold. I believe this is one of the hardest areas of sin that we will ever deal with in our entire life. It's so hard. And it's simply so hard because it was not you that had done it. It is someone else that wounded you. It, that's, the, it is a, that's the common reality of all of our lives. You live long enough, you are going to have a heart carrying a lot of scars from what people have done to you. Things they've hurt you. We all share that. We all have heart-covered, scar-covered hearts because of what others have done to us. And those are hard to deal with because it wasn't your fault. You didn't deserve to be treated that way, to have that person that you loved and trusted end up hurting you and wounding you in a horrible way. It's difficult, but then we got to deal with it because Scripture says we don't let bitterness in our And here's what happened. They throw those seeds into your garden, and then not your fault. We can enjoy holding a grudge, so you let that seed grow and grow. And soon enough, it starts choking out all the other good fruit that you have within your garden. And, and here's the horrible truth about this scenario. The fruit within your garden is produced for those that you love the most. Those that you love the most are going to feed from the fruit that comes from your heart, from your inner world. You ever meet an older person? They're in their senior years, and they are just full of happiness and joy you know those, you, I bet someone came to mind just now for you when I said that. They're happy. I think these are people that have mastered this particular area in their life. And they have a garden that's in full bloom. And they're not, they don't have weeds that are choking out the good fruit. Have you ever met someone that's in their senior years? And it seems like they are just always angry. I mean, they roll out of bed mad. They go to bed mad. And they're angry at the world and everything else. I think that's probably someone that has suffered with what people have done to them, and their garden is completely overrun by weeds. I don't want to grow old to be that guy. (laughs) I want to grow old to be the sweet old man, not the mean old man. So this is very, for all of us, this is something I think that's one of the keys to having happiness late in life, is you need to oftentimes walk the aisles of of the garden within and grab those roots and pull them out, because it means so much to our future. So much to those that we love that we want the fruit of the Spirit to produce fruit that feeds. So important for us. And something that we see here, Ahithophel failed at doing. 
Because it's so, so easy, so enjoyable to hold a grudge sometimes. But we need to repent of that. Jesus has a recipe for dealing with this. If you would, let's turn to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. It says this. Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you offer your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So when your brother or sister thinks that you are wrong... You go and be reconciled. Now turn over to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Matthew 18, 15 says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. So when you think that your brother has wronged you, you go and be reconciled. Doesn't sound like it's saying the same thing? It's not. It's saying complete opposites with the same outcome. So what Jesus is saying is that when you think they are wrong or they think you are wrong, you go and be reconciled. What Jesus is saying is that the init- the, it, it, the, the, to initiate is in, your, is in your, your ballpark. It begins with you. You take the initiation to seek reconciliation. You go and be reconciled. If you think they're wrong or they think you're wrong, we have a biblical concept that's kind of sprinkled through almost all of Scripture. It is this. It's that the stronger always reaches to the weaker. You, but we oftentimes think, no, that's not the way it should work. They wronged me, so they need to come and apologize to me, and I'm going to sit here with them in my dungeon, and I'm not going to take them out of the dungeon until they say they're sorry. <laughs> that doesn't work, does it? And what Jesus is saying is that you need to initiate. You need to be one to seek reconciliation on a hurt relationship. Now, here's something else. This is so easy to stand up here and preach and to talk about. It is so hard to do in real life. Like I said, I think this is one of the hardest areas of our life that we're probably ever going to face, is dealing with this kind of stuff. It's hard. It's very difficult. Not only that, but it's also difficult giving certain situations. The person that might have wounded you the deepest might not even be alive anymore, or they might still be alive but it would not be wise for you to reach out to that person again. I would say in those situations, that's why God has created this beautiful thing called the church, his family, where you don't have to face this hard junk alone. You have people that can walk along with you and give you wise counsel. And the church has given you a shepherd that can say, ah, that may not be a good idea to try to contact that person again. Here's another way we can go about trying trying to help heal your heart. You get people that can walk along the side with you. I would say utilize the tools that God has given you as as a follower of Jesus and use his church, use his leaders to help get through some of this tough junk because this is hard stuff. It's very difficult. But when you have an argument in a Sunday school class and you feel jaded, you take the initiation and you go seek reconciliation. When they sat in your pew and you're mad, you seek reconciliation. Whatever it might be, you take the initiative and try to seek reconciliation to find, because it's not, it's not worth it. Be that happy old man, that happy old lady. And, 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 and I think if this is something we can master, we are so much better for it. One last example I want to share with you before we're going to end today. One last principle that goes along with this concept. When David was running from his son, 
that was trying to take over the kingdom. As he ran, a guy named Shimei, who harbored a grudge towards David, he felt like David, I I think he felt that he became king wrongly. Shimei was in Saul's family, and with the, the kingship being taken away from Saul's family and given to David, he just, he just had, he harbored this grudge towards David. So now his opportunity, David's running, out comes Shimei, and he's cursing at David. He's throwing rocks at David. Well, David's men of valor are with him, and they say, why don't we just chop off this dead dog's head? <laughs> That's their words. They called him a dead dog. Let's chop off this dead dog's head and be done with him. And David says, no, no, maybe God's going to teach me through this, something through this. So they go, David goes out in the wilderness with his military. They end up forming an army out there, basically. Eventually, um, his son's army and David's army meet up, and they have this battle, and his son is killed. And David is then crossing back over into his land. And as he crosses the, the Jordan River, Shimei comes out to meet him. Let's take a look at that account. It's First Kings. Actually, uh, no, I, I don't have that passage. Let me tell you. He, he meets him, and David tells him, uh, Shimei, as long as you live, you will not die by the sword. I, I, won't, I, I won't hold you accountable for what you did. He, he forgives him. He forgives him. Well, many years go by. David is now an old man himself. He's about to die, and he's sitting with his son Solomon and giving his son Solomon some advice. Look at David's last words. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 8. And this is David talking to Solomon. He says, And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gura, a Benjaminite from Boharum, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day I went to Mahaman. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan. And I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless. For you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. And then, uh, David dies. His deathbed words. And here's the last principle I think we can learn from this particular, this topic that we're talking about on forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. (laughs) It's a process. So, you have that bitter root in your garden. You go out and you wrestle it and you finally pull it out and you've had success over this bitter root and you throw it and you burn it. Yay. You get up the next day and you walk your garden and it's regrowing right there again. Don't you hate that about weeds? If you like to garden, you're always pulling out weeds, aren't you? That's true of our life as well. You pull out that weed. You have forgiven that person. I, and, and you're like, yeah, I'm finally free. I don't have the bitterness of, free, of that person. And then you go to bed and you wake up the next morning and you're thinking, oh, that dirty, rotten scoundrel. And that weed is right back there again. <laughs> it is a process that we go through our entire life. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. And for the person or maybe the times that you have been wounded the most, it's going to be something you go through your whole life at forgiving that person. It's going to be it's one of the challenges that we all share, but it's one that we need, to, we need to work hard at. Now, I also say this. I have some good news for you. You might be here and saying, Pastor, you know, that sounds all great, but there is no way within me I can forgive that person that has hurt me so badly. They don't deserve it. I can't, I can't do it. I understand what you're saying, but I, can't, I, I cannot do it. Okay. I want to offer you something that may be one of the greatest miracles that you will ever see in your entire life. 
you have that person that you cannot forgive, but you make the decision, I'm going to agree with God that carrying bitterness is sin, and I'm going to repent over that. I'm going to bring it to God and say, God, I don't want this. I understand that for me to be bitter over this person is sinful. I need to forgive them, but I have a hard time doing it. God, will you help me? If you will ask for God's help to find forgiveness of a person, you will see a miracle happen in your life when he does. When he gets involved, you keep making a matter of prayer, and you will one day find out, wow, God did a miracle in my life because that person that had hurt me so badly, I'm free. I don't have the dungeon in me no more. It's gone. I no longer am and, and carrying this, this horrible burden in the, in this, of, of what, that he had, what they had done to me. It, it'll be a miracle. So I challenge you to see a miracle in your life. Take that hard area that you've been wounded so badly. Bring it to God and let God, see God work within you in a way that he, because here's, there is a prayer that I say on a regular basis. You can steal this if you want. It's not just mine. You can have it. Here's, here, here's my go-to prayer in any scenario at any time. God, please get involved. When I say that prayer, I know every time I say it, the answer is yes, and God gets involved. If you have a challenging area of your life, the person that has wounded and hurt you, if you will pray, God, please get involved, help me find peace over this, I promise you he will. His answer every time is yes. So today, I think in one of the ways that we can respond, I know as I talked about this, there is someone that has come up. Like I said, it's the process we all go through. Maybe you're here today and your garden is free of weeds. <laughs> you're probably very few because we all harbor these and challenge these things. And maybe today you're saying, oh, there's a weed there. Maybe today it's not a weed, it's turned into an oak tree. <laughs> it's difficult. Um, I would say today may be the day you need to make the commitment and ask God to get involved. Say, God, please help me with this. And maybe today that's the commitment you need to do. In a little bit, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, and there's going to be some people at the end of our singing, I think over here on the side, that will pray with you. If it's difficult, don't do that alone. Make an appointment. Talk to one of your pastors. and Say, hey, I'm having a hard time. I've been hurt so bad, and I don't want to be a grouchy, mean old person. I want to be a happy, joyful old, loving old person. Can you help me to get there and, and help me pray with me? They'd love to do that. I know it. Um, and maybe that's, that's the commitment maybe today you need to take as we sing in, in a minute. It's when our time and our business with God is done. But I also want to tell you that you have a God that completely relates to your situation. You know, there is no one on the face of the earth that has ever been mistreated more than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No one. He was perfect. And because of our sin, because of my sin, he endured horribleness and went to the cross and died on the cross because of that. There's no one that's been mistreated more than he has because he loves you and I so much. So when we bring this before God and we say, we've been hurt, I've been hurt, we have a Savior that relates to us because he understands what it's like to endure horrible suffering when you didn't deserve it. When he didn't, he didn't deserve it. You don't deserve it. He understands that. And you're talking to someone that can relate to you and wants to help you through it. But with that, we have this great news. We have someone that relates to us, but we also have someone that, because he loved you so much, he endured all that. He went to the cross and died on the cross for your sin, for my sin, and he was resurrected on the third day. His sacrifice was complete and accepted 
And, and, and now we have someone that testifies on our behalf. Did you know to get access to that, to get access to God, to receive that, you cannot earn it. <laughs> you can't. You cannot be good enough. It's by faith. We ask for it. And what Jesus says, he says, I have this gift. I want to adopt you as one of my children. I want to make you part of my family. And here's a gift, and all you need to do is to ask for it. If you will place your faith and trust that Jesus is the one that can make you right with God, um, all you need to do is ask, and he answers that every time with yes. So I'm going to pray in a moment. If that's something that you have never done, if you're, or you're today and you're unsure, am I really a child of God? Do I have certainty? Have I done that? I want today to be a day that you can have certainty. So if you've never done that, I'm going to say a prayer right now. I invite you to pray with me this prayer in your heart. All it takes is to ask. If you can trust that Jesus can make you right, if you believe that, 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 that he's, if you believe that, then the first thing we're going to do to exercise that belief is to ask for it. Is that something that you are wanting to do here today and to have certainty that you can be a child of God? Say this prayer with me. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, I thank you that I'm talking to a, a God that understands everything I go through. And even though, Lord, that you suffered so much because of me and because of our sin, you did not um, hold a grudge. You did it because you loved us, because you loved me. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would forgive me of my sin, that you would come into my heart, that you would lead me through the rest of my life. And I trust that there is no way to be right with God other than you. So I pray, Lord, that you forgive me for the sin of my life. And I trust my future into your hands. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So now we're going to stand and we're going to sing. If you said that prayer for the first time, please come up in a bit and talk to one of the the people up front. I'll be in the back somewhere. Come tell me in the back. I'd love to tell you about some new things in your life. But also, Christian, how are you doing with your garden? I challenge you to walk those aisles right now. Walk them with the Lord. And what might he be calling you to do in dealing with them? Today might be the day you make the commitment to deal with something that you've maybe been hiding behind time heals all wounds, and it doesn't. Make today the day that God transforms that area of your life. Let's sing.